Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'd like to thank you for your prayer and your kind notes uh, this past week with the, the passing of Melissa's grandfather. He died in faith, uh, surrounded by family that love him last Saturday. Thanks to Andy for filling in last Sunday as well, preaching from John 3 uh, and the new birth. Uh, the boys and I appreciated listening to that. We were encouraged listening to that on the way back from, from Utah last week. Next Sunday, as Lucas already alluded to, next Sunday Steve Doobie will be preaching uh, at the end of Romans 11 here, and then we'll have one sermon on Advent, one sermon on Christmas Day, and then one sermon on New Year's Day, and then beyond that we'll get back into Romans 12, and then, Lord willing, we'll continue through the book of Romans until about mid-May next year, where we'll wrap up Romans 16. Well, perhaps you've noticed over the past few months, or weeks even, that the theme, the topic of anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head again. Uh, Anti-Semitism, of course, is the hostility towards Jewish people for their ethnicity. Jewish people seem to be uniquely and routinely targeted with animosity, particularly during times of social change or uncertainty across society at large. They are all too often singled out and saddled with the responsibility of all the world's ills. If anyone thinks less of people on the basis of their ethnicity, scripture would call us to repent of that sin. Racism denies that people of every ethnicity are created in the image of God. It is a sin. There is no reason to think that one ethnicity is inherently superior or inferior to any other ethnicity. Well, the Gentile Christians in Rome might not have been anti-Semitic in that sense, but from Paul's argument in chapters 9 through 11, it seems that they might have been tempted to think that they were somehow replacing Israel as God's chosen people. They might have been tempted to think that, well, perhaps God has turned his back on Israel. Maybe he has broken off all of those past promises to them. And to be fair, it may have appeared that way. A large portion of Israel rejected their promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And since all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and there is only one name under heaven by, men, by which men must be saved, well, it did appear that the promises of salvation for Israel were not playing out as expected. But appearances can be deceiving. As we begin to wrap this section up, we should hopefully walk away in humble adoration at the astonishing way that God has arranged redemptive history. He does not operate according to our fallen wisdom, our limited expectations, but God is faithful to his promises and his salvation will not fail. I submit that the big idea of this passage for us this morning is this. God faithfully orchestrates his perfect salvation in an astonishing way. God faithfully orchestrates his perfect salvation in an astonishing way. And we'll have three points that'll go along with that. First, in the end, God will save all his Gentile and Israelite elect. We'll see that in verses 25 to 27. Second, God cannot and will not revoke his promises to Israel, 
verses 28 and 29. And then third, astonishing, divine mercy orchestrated through human disobedience in verses 30 to 32. That'll be our outline this morning. But before we dive in, let us pray. Our creator God, you remind us that the darkness of our ignorance and our doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of scripture, shine his light once again, awaken us to hearing and to understanding and to trusting in this radiant truth. In Jesus' name, amen. First, in the end, God will save all his Gentile and Israelite elect. Let me read verses 25 through 27 into our hearing again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, there are a few different ways to understand these verses. I'm going to explain the different options. I'm going to make the case for why I'm interpreting it the way that I am. And you can make your decision between the three legitimate options that we'll cover this morning. In verse 26, you'll see that phrase that is the, the sermon's title this morning, all Israel will be saved. That phrase has caused some confusion. It sure seems as if Paul has been trying to convince us that no one is saved by the basis of their ethnicity alone, including Israel. So what does he mean here? What does that phrase, all Israel will be saved, mean? Well, keep in mind that Paul has used this word Israel in multiple ways throughout these chapters. There are three possible options for what this phrase means here. You could reasonably agree with any of these options and these interpretations. First, all Israel here might mean the ethnic people group as a whole. So all of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's physical children. Now this is the majority view. This will be the most common one. Most, when they take this interpretation, do not mean that every individual within ethnic Israel will be saved. We know that there are places in the Old Testament where the phrase all Israel is used and it doesn't mean every individual. So there are places where it says, and all Israel came out to make him king which does not mean every individual, but enough of a representative number that you could say reasonably that all of Israel was there. So we have precedent for that within the Bible. So according to this view, when the full number of elect Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered into God's people, right before Jesus' bodily return to earth, there will be a mass conversion of ethnic Israel to faith in their promised Messiah. So, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Stop rejecting him. 
the interpretation here infers that when Christ returns again for the second time, there will be a mass conversion of those who are ethnically Jewish into the, God, uh, the people of God, that one olive tree that Paul has been using here as an example. Second interpretive option, all Israel here might mean the church, both Jew and Gentile. Now you might think that that sounds strange at first, but I'll remind you that in Galatians 6.16, Paul refers to the church as, quote, the Israel of God. So we have some biblical precedent here as well. And we know that the true Israel, the true people of God, the children of the promise, are composed of both Jewish believers and those Gentiles who have been grafted into God's people by faith. The spiritual children of Abraham, in that sense. Now, all of that is certainly true. But it doesn't appear, upon my reading, to be the group that Paul has in mind here. Uh, And I don't think that that's true because in verse 28, he refers to this same group and he says, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And so it would seem strange for Paul to say that the church is enemies for their sake with regards to the gospel. So although that is a legitimate and very common view, I don't think that that's the right one. A third option that I'm inclined to uh, agree with this morning is that all Israel here is the elect of ethnic Israel throughout history. God will always save for himself a remnant of Jews throughout all of history. Uh, Paul has already appeared to lump himself in with that elect remnant at the beginning of chapter 11, verses one through two. So if this is true, we wouldn't necessarily expect an explosive or unique ingathering of ethnic Israelites at or near the second coming of Christ. But it does mean that God is faithful to his promises and it does mean that God has not rejected his people. I, I think this view is most consistent in light of reading these three chapters together. And we've included in your worship guide uh, a double-sided handout that has the big idea and the outline that we have used over the past uh, few months as we're walking through these chapters. Uh, And I wanna argue that we really need to read all of these chapters together in concert to make proper sense of this phrase here. Because these verses uh, act like a brief recap. They're kind of like a summary of everything that Paul has already said. He's interacting with that question that he introduced at the beginning of chapter nine, that question of God's faithfulness to the promises that he made to Israel. Didn't he promise that he would save Israel from their sins? Didn't he say that he would banish ungodliness from them? These are scriptural promises that he made to them. Is he going to fulfill them or not? We know those promises are fulfilled in the person and work of that promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, and yet a large portion of Israel has rejected him, which means they aren't saved. So the question arises, did God cancel his promises to them? Does the fact that Israel rejected God, mean that God rejected Israel. No, Paul says, Israel's lack of faith in the Messiah isn't because God's promises to Israel have failed. And so then he spends some time explaining what God's promises to Israel were, how to rightly understand them, how God has already fulfilled them so far, and how we ought to expect him to fulfill them into the future. 
So how should we think about this? Well, we need to carefully define our terms and try to follow the whole train of thought, the whole logical argument here. Yes, God promised salvation to Israel, but Romans 9, 6 says, not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. This verse is key to understanding everything that comes after it here at the head of this argument. And then, of course, Romans 9, 8 reminds us that only some of Abraham's children are actually children of the promise. He didn't promise salvation to every ethnic Israelite. Now, does that make God unjust? Absolutely not. As creator, God is free to bestow mercy upon whomever he wills. He doesn't owe salvation to anyone, and when he gives it, it is purely an act of grace. So, like the Old Testament prophets said, though Abraham has many sons, and Israel is, in fact, a large group, ethnically speaking, only a remnant of them will be saved. A large portion of Israel didn't receive Jesus in faith because they were too busy trying to establish their own righteousness through obedience to the law. They thought that they could obey the law, those 10 commandments that God gave to them, well enough to establish their own righteousness. But the unforgiving demands of the law that they surely would have experienced were supposed to help Israel see how impossible it is to live up to those expectations so that they would cry out in desperation for salvation from God alone for his righteousness. We know that righteousness cannot be attained through our works. God freely offered his own righteousness as a gift to be received through faith in his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in every way that Israel and you and I could not. And by faith, his righteousness then is credited to our account. And anyone who hears that message of salvation that is offered in Jesus, who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his or her heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Salvation is only possible in and through faith in Jesus. Now, these promises are not only good for Israel. These are not promises that were only made for them. They're actually good for any other people group who desire salvation, and that's the Gentile nations. So, the promise of salvation for Israel is good for Israel, and it's also good for any other people group, which includes everybody. So, the promise of salvation is good for anyone who wants to get in on this deal. Now, Israel heard this message of salvation. They understood the message, but a majority of them rejected it. Why? Romans 10:21 tells us, because Israel is a disobedient and contrary people. So, if Israel rejected God, does that mean then that God has in turn rejected them? Absolutely not. He has chosen for himself a remnant within Israel who will remain faithful to him. God's elect individuals within Israel whom he freely chose by his grace alone have responded to him in faith, but the rest were hardened so that they would continue to reject the gospel. Now, did God harden Israel in order to simply make them fall? Is that the goal? Is that what he's trying to intend? Is that God's goal in hardening Israel in their unbelief? Absolutely not. There's a bigger plan playing out here. God used Israel's rejection of the gospel to redirect the message of the gospel out into the nations. 
Paul uses a metaphor to help us understand how all this is working. God's people are like an olive tree. And as Gentiles received Israel's promised Messiah in faith, it's like they're being wild branches that are grafted into this one olive tree. And as Israel sees the Gentile nations being grafted in in faith, accepting their promised Messiah, they would become jealous and they would return to faith in their promised Messiah. They too would be grafted into that olive tree, God's one united people. That whole argument is the context that we must keep in mind to rightly interpret these verses. Romans eleven twenty five to 26. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, again, I don't take all Israel to be a reference to a mass influx of ethnic Jews at the return of Jesus. I don't take it to be the church, which is made up of Gentiles and Jews together, though both of those are very possible options. And we need to have some charity as we're reading through these together. If you think that those interpretations are right, you're in good company, okay? But I take all Israel to be the full number of God's elect remnant out of his ancient covenant people throughout all time. And this is not a unique thing that I came up with either. Like this is a, a valid option. Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. So who's truly Israel? The children of the promise, God's elect remnant. They all will be saved. The mystery in verse 25 then is not about a surprising future about how much of ethnic Israel will be saved. The mystery on this reading is the way in which Israel will be saved. And it really is bewildering when you stop to think about the way that redemptive history has been playing out. Think about it. Romans 1.16, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first, and then also to the Greek. But as part of God's mysterious plan, many of the Jews didn't believe. And as a result then, the gospel came to the Gentiles, and some of them did believe. And as a result of that, some Jews were moved to jealousy, and they began to believe too. That, I believe, is the mystery that Paul is revealing. From Israel to the Gentiles, and then back to Israel. One commentator calls it God's boomerang of salvation. From Israel to the Gentiles, and then back to Israel. That's not how I would have guessed that this whole thing would have played out. But I don't want to be wise in my own eyes, do I? It makes sense. Uh, God will make good on his promises. He has not rejected Israel. And the Gentiles rightly belong to the people of God. But they should not be proud about that, thinking that they've replaced Israel. Because after the Gentile elect are grafted in, that fullness of the Gentiles, that hardened part of Israelites, well, those will be grafted back into God's people as well. And in the end, God will save his Gentile and Israelite elect the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of spiritual Israel in that sense. Well, Israel has rejected their Messiah, which brought the gospel to the Gentile nations. As God's elect and the Gentile nations are grafted into God's people, that hardening that God put on heart, a part of Israel, well, now it served its purpose, and it ends. And that is the way in which all who are truly Israel will be saved. 
God will finally and ultimately make good on those promises to banish ungodliness from Jacob, uh, to take away their sins, and through the new covenant, forgive them through Christ's blood. God cannot and will not revoke his promises to Israel. That's point two. In verses 28 to 29. Verse 28. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, unbelieving Israel are enemies of the gospel here, according to Paul's language, which has worked out for the advantage of the Gentile Christians. Uh, because Israel's rejection of the gospel led to the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the fact that they are enemies of the gospel worked out for the Gentile Christians. But God's electing love is still upon Israel on account of the promises that he made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that it is impossible, it is not possible for God to repent from giving his gifts and calling to Israel. He will not go back on that. Now these passages, I grant, are, are complicated. Uh, some teachers have misread these and other chapters about Israel and have come up with the idea that the mystery that Paul is speaking of here in this passage is actually that God has two people, that God has an earthly people in the church, and then God has a separate people, his heavenly people. Uh, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. His earthly people are Israel, and his uh, heavenly people are uh, the church, that God has two distinct people and he has two distinct plans for each of those people. So after he's done with the church, he's going to restore Israel back to a nation state. He will revive David to sit on his throne and he will reestablish the Old Testament sacrificial system. Some have suggested that because God has made certain promises to the nation state of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled in the way that we would expect, they will need to be fulfilled in the future by the nation of Israel. But that seems to reject the united nature of God's people that, that we've just seen, that Paul has laid out there in that one olive tree. And I would also argue that it seems to misunderstand how everything in the Old Testament was moving towards and anticipating Jesus. Uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system was moving towards the fullness of what those things all meant in the person of Jesus. And so to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system would obscure the person and work of Jesus to whom they all pointed. It would misread the progressive nature of God's covenants throughout redemptive history. The Israel spoken of in these passages is an ethnic people, not necessarily a geopolitical nation state. On my reading, it seems that Paul has a great hope for the future salvation of Israel, but not for their national restoration complete with temple sacrifices. Now, some have argued even that Israel will be saved apart from faith in the Messiah because God has made these promises and he can't uh, go back on them, then they must be saved whether or not by their own free will they will repent and believe in the Messiah. That their only hope is to be grafted into the God's people by faith. If there's a future hope of salvation for Israel, it will be in the same way as every other ethnicity to be grafted back into God's people by faith alone in Christ alone. They must, like Romans 10 tells us, confess and believe. 
It might be helpful here to clarify that this position is not what is sometimes called replacement theology. All ethnic Jews who believe in Christ are included in the promises. There is no one of Jewish ethnicity who has ever been replaced in the people of God by a Gentile. That is not how it works. This is not a replacement. There is no one of Jewish ethnicity who has ever been replaced in the people of God by a Gentile. The church did not replace or supersede Israel. But it seems Paul argues that those who believe in Jesus now are the redemptive culmination, continuation, and fulfillment of God's people. Now, it's not as if there's a limited number of people who are allowed to respond to the gospel like it's first come, first served. And sometimes we see this biblical word that is used here in this passage of election and we go haywire. Uh, We think that millions of millions of people have come. Just honestly, stop and think about that for a minute. Throughout the ages, since the time Paul wrote this, think about how many millions of people have been grafted in, who have died in faith, who have gone before us. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. There are countless people then having been grafted into the people of God. As many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. But I want to be clear, though millions have come, there's still room for one. Do not think that this is a group that you cannot get into. That is not the way that we need to be thinking about these categories. The doctrine of election should not be a hindrance to anyone unsure about whether or not they are invited to take part in the people of God. You hear the invitation, you're invited. That's how it works. And then once you join in, there is great assurance and comfort in knowing that the promises that God has extended to you in the gospel cannot and will not be revoked. God elected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the roots of his chosen people, and God cannot and will not revoke the promises that he made to them. God is not a man that he should lie, scripture tells us. He is unchanging in his nature, he is unchanging in his character, Israel's rebellion has not caused God to withdraw his vows to them. God does not learn new information and then adapt his redemptive plan based on that. If he has committed to something, it is as good as done already. It would go against God's nature to revoke his promises, so he cannot do that. But further, he doesn't want to. Notice what it says. Israel is beloved by God. In the final analysis, God has no regrets about covenanting with this, this people. And in the same way, Christian, he has no regrets in extending his love and mercy to you. Perhaps you're struggling with assurance of salvation. Maybe you know God will revoke his promises to you, but you're worried that you might revoke yours to him. Your life is marked by the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, perhaps. Maybe right now you can stop and pray, ask that the Holy Spirit himself would bear witness with your spirit that you are truly a child of God. 
Let me encourage you to strengthen the grasp of the magnitude, the depth of the powerful mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. Repent of your sin of unbelief and commit once again to the obedience of faith, knowing that God will not turn his back on you and he will hold you fast. So what does all this mean for our relationship between the church and Jewish people? Well, I'll just restate that anti-Semitism is to be fully and thoroughly rejected. That is clear, but surely we can say more than that. A couple of our members have struck up a friendship with some of their Jewish neighbors. They share meals together, they talk about all sorts of topics, including the things of God. Uh, And they've had some interesting discussions about heaven and what heaven might be like. There is so much common ground between them that it's fairly natural to be able to get into these conversations about the deeper things of life, uh, the things that matter. They believe in a supernatural world. They believe that God is one. That's a great place to start. Uh, the, The ground has been plowed, in a sense, then for evangelism. We have prayed many times for those conversions Uh, for for those conversations to result in conversions and for gospel fruit to come about from those uh, discussions with those Jews. We, like Paul, should grieve that so many Jewish people have scorned Christ. Following the example of those members that I mentioned, we should similarly engage with those Jewish friends and neighbors. You could just ask a very simple question to sort of get in the door. What do you believe about the Old Testament scriptures? You'd be amazed what that conversation might bear uh, in terms of fruit. We should pray that God would redeem the Jewish remnant. And how will that happen? Paul told us in chapter 10, didn't he? They would have to hear it. It would happen in the same way as any other ethnicity by hearing, understanding, and trusting in the gospel. It's entirely possible that someone within here this morning shares Paul's burden in the sense that they would love to be a part of evangelistic efforts in Israel. Perhaps you'd be interested in becoming engaged in evangelistic efforts there. Maybe something to think about, pray about. God cannot and will not revoke his promises to Israel. Their disobedience has not derailed God's plan. In fact, what is an astonishing mystery is that God's divine mercy is orchestrated through human disobedience. Third, astonishing, divine mercy orchestrated through human disobedience. Verses 30 to 32, I'll read those again. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now take notice if you've got your scripture there in front of you, how many times the word disobedience and mercy appear. Just in those couple verses. Disobedience, I think, is four according to my count. Mercy is thrice. So we're looking at, in these verses, the relationship between human disobedience and divine mercy. And we will be helped in understanding this properly if we make the pronouns explicit. So when it says you, that means Gentile Christians, that's who Paul is writing to. And when it says they or there, it's speaking of the people of Israel. And we should read disobedient as the opposite of the, the obedience of faith. 
So their disobedience is just another way to say that they've rejected the gospel, okay? So with all that in mind, in other words, Israel's rejection of the gospel brought God's mercy to the Gentiles, and now Israel rejects the gospel but sees Gentiles receive it, and then they become jealous and they turn to receive God's mercy. So what does all mean in verse 32 then? If that's the way that we should read this, what does it mean that he's consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all? Some have twisted this verse, having taken it out of context, to mean that Paul believes that every individual will ultimately be saved. This is the doctrine of universalism, a doctrine we ought to reject along with scripture. The belief that in the end, God will extend his saving mercy to everyone regardless of their faith in Christ. But if we follow the flow of what Paul has been saying here, that wouldn't even come to mind. It becomes clear that all means all groups, both Israel and Gentiles. Those are the two groups that he's dealing with here in this passage. So here is the astonishing statement. God consigned both Gentiles and Israelites to unbelief in order to circulate mercy among both those groups. This is the culmination, I believe, of Paul's argument that he started in chapter nine. So he's fully answered that question that he rose uh, in, in chapter nine, verse six, has God's word failed? Absolutely not. In fact, that's why Paul, hopefully you've seen over the past months, painstakingly turns to scripture to establish his point. He's saying, no, God's word hasn't failed. In fact, God's word is being upheld in the way that this is all playing out. Let me just point you to scripture. Let's read it together and let's understand this. This is how Paul has been making his argument. God's word has not failed. God's word is happening right now. This is what it looks like. It might not match our expectations, but this is what we ought to expect. This is the mystery that Paul now speaks of. Just in the ways we have not, we, would, we wouldn't have, just think about Christmas. We wouldn't have expected God to come in the way that he did. And God is always subverting our expectations. And I think that's what we're finding here as well. God made a promise that he cannot and he will not revoke. And that promise was to have a large family of equals from every tribe and tongue and nation. And God accomplishes that goal through the rejection of the gospel by some Jews, the acceptance of the gospel by the fullness of the Gentiles, and then as a result, Israel's envy is meant to produce an acceptance of, hopefully, more and more ethnic Jews. It is in this astonishing and surprising and stunning way that all Israel will be saved. Every child of the promise will be saved. God will have his large family. And as we turn to chapters 12 through 16 in the spring semester, Lord willing, we'll begin to walk through the practical applications of what it looks like to live together as God's united people, those who have been called together by the gospel. Just think with me for a minute about the way in which salvation has come. This is a timely topic uh, as we're in the second Sunday of Advent. God's story of redemption is the greatest story ever told. And I don't mean to say that it's a story that is not true, it's not a myth, but it is the one story that every good story points towards. Think about the promises, the struggles, the catastrophes, the joys that have played out through God's redemptive narrative 
going back to the Garden of Eden, through Israel, to the cross, into the church, in anticipation of his return. Think about the joy and the wonder of a hero who dies for the helpless. Think about the anticipation of just wanting to, wanting to know more, wanting to see how this page turner ends in the final analysis. What is heaven like? What can we anticipate? But here is the unfathomable mystery. Our fall into sin is what brought about the glories of Christmas and the reconciliation of all things. Think about what kind of astonishing wisdom could turn sinful human rebellion into the greatest good. The curse and its effects run along history with God's promises that he will provide salvation, he will provide redemption, and you and I, in our human disobedience, sin according to our own sinful desires. We have not been coerced into rejecting the gospel, and yet God wills and intends for righteous things to come about in spite of and sometimes even through sinful human disobedience. You can think of the cross as one great example. Talk about flipping the script, right? But isn't that just like God? Our God who slays the mighty giant with one small stone. Our God who gains glory by empowering those we would least expect. Our God who comes not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. Our God who steps into the story assuming a lowly and weak human nature in order to reverse the curse from inside the story. Our God who could exchange the death of one into life for the many. Oh, the surprisingly satisfying, mind-boggling subversion of our expectations and the redemptive narrative that our sovereign, wise God is stitching together. In the end, the disobedience of Gentiles and Jews alike aren't the end of the story because God sovereignly orchestrates the dispensation of mercy to both groups through disobedience. God's promises will stand. Take courage, dear friends. Nothing will sidetrack redemptive history from barreling towards that day when all nations will glorify God for his astonishing wisdom and grace and mercy. And it's up to us to worship while we wait. Let's pray.